Let's seek the Lord's aid in prayer as we come before the open word today. Father, we pray for the ministry of the Spirit of God. There are those among us who are in difficulty and trial. Those among us who are perhaps so excited about something that it's hard to concentrate. There are those among us who do not know Christ as Savior, would not make any claim to know Him in that saving way. And we pray in their behalf that you would open blind eyes, help them to see what they cannot see. For those of us who have been rejoicing in heart and in song, thanking you for what you have done, for who you are, for the glories that you have shown us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we rejoice, we give thanks and pray again that you would help us to see from your word things old and new. We would feed upon the Word of God, knowing that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we turn ourselves as believers to this inerrant truth that you have recorded for us, that you have delivered to us, and may we be faithful with it. Guide us here, work among us, we pray, for the glory of your name and for your name alone. Through Christ we pray, amen. If you set out to disprove Christianity, where would you focus your attack? George and Gilbert pondered that very question. Lord George Littleton was a graduate of the esteemed Oxford University, a prolific poet, and a member of England's parliament. He and his esteemed friend, Gilbert West, lived in the so-called Age of Reason. The age of reason and part of that world, they were, as intellectuals were in that day, many of them, they were deists. That is, they believed that God created the universe and then he withdrew from any further contact with the world that he had created. This meant for them as deists that they wholly rejected the very possibility of divine revelation and of miracles. George and Gilbert made sure that God remained in his lockbox. God never spoke. God never intervened with supernatural power in human affairs. So, in 1747, Littleton wrote a letter to West to see if old Gil might be up to having some fun. Both scholars believed the Bible to be a fraud, and they hatched a plan to disprove it just for giggles. Where best to deal a death blow to Christianity? Gilbert West made the obvious choice. He decided to debunk the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, the Christian faith is debunked, discredited, disowned, disavowed, and dead. It's game over. West did not worry about the implications were it proven that Jesus did rise from the dead because it was impossible for him to have done so. God was in his box. He left a long time ago. Impossible. What about Lord Littleton? George chose something we may not think about. He chose to write and disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
Littleton discerned that if Saul was truly converted to Christ in the way that the Bible claims, the only explanation was the one that Saul himself provided. The risen Christ called him to repentant faith. So Littleton and West set a date and they said, later this year, let's do our work and we'll get together and share our research and gloat in our intellectual triumph over this silly religion. So what was Littleton up against as he began his research? He was up against three passages in the book of Acts. A book that recounts the history, the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we have the account of Saul's conversion. In Acts chapters 22 and 26, Paul's testimony to that experience. Now, as we turn our focus to that historical record of Acts chapter 9, we must remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with ancient history. And so we must remember that absolute certainty of irrefutable evidence cannot be achieved in the reconstruction of ancient accounts. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is as far as we can go. As we look at a world where there was no audiovisual recordings, none of the current day capacities to record and store information. So that said we will consider how the official church record of Saul's conversion, an account that bears witness to a revelation of the risen Christ, we'll look at that account and at the work of Christ to redeem that we find in it. So after completing this reading, we'll take some time to soak in Acts chapter 9 here today and then give some moments of analysis of the authenticity of the account as we finish our time. But we want to give it a fair hearing, and we must do that as we work with ancient text. Listen to what the author says, first of all, before we draw our conclusions. We notice, first of all, uh, the initial stage of Saul's mission in chapter 9 and verse 1. Saul's initial mission In the first two verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is to the Christian faith, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What we know of Saul of Tarsus is that he was a well-connected, well-educated, highly ambitious young rabbi operating at the highest levels of Jewish power at the capital, in the capital city of Jerusalem. Saul had some familiarity with Christianity's claims, but he vehemently rejected those beliefs as a blasphemous assault against the name of God. In his fervent zeal, Saul secured a meeting with the high priest. So take note of that. He secures a meeting with the high priest, seeking his authority to hunt down Christians in Syria. Now, gaining audience with the most powerful man in Israel establishes Saul's mission to Damascus as a matter of official record. No one fabricated stories like this. A story that I met with the high priest that I officially represented him in Damascus. You didn't make claims like that if they weren't true. 
In Acts chapter 22 and verse 5, in fact, Saul stands before an official court and says, go ahead, in so many words. He says, go ahead, ask the high priest, ask the Sanhedrin, which if we have any parallel today, it'd be like, go to the Senate floor and ask them if it's not true that I was sent officially to persecute Christians in Damascus. This wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't fabricated. He did this. And no one has ever attempted to refute that claim. So with the high priest's blessing, Saul made the week-long journey to the great trading capital of Damascus, nearly 150 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. It was a slower world. Saul set out, we find here in the text, breathing threats and murder against Christ's disciples. And everyone around him knew that. They knew this was who Saul was. Indeed, word reached Christ's followers in Damascus that Saul was on his way. So be warned. We see in the next movement of the narrative, the risen Christ converts Saul. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As Saul's posse approaches the city of Damascus, the risen Christ stops Saul dead in his tracks. A brilliant light shines in chapter 26 and verse 13 as he gives his own account of it. He said, it outshone the sun. And he falls to the ground. Saul heard a voice. He knew this was a supernatural revelation. There's no question in his mind about that. Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's God. Whoa, what is this? Persecuting me. Who are you, Lord? The Lord says, to paraphrase Saul, let's, uh, let's go back to that word persecuting. Let me spell it out for you. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What does this narrative claim? If we just step back from it for a moment, it is claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's alive and he is reigning. Secondly, Jesus is at work gathering and identifying with his church. And thirdly, Saul's opposition to Christ's followers is a direct assault against Jesus himself. He is risen, he is reigning, and the work against the church is a work against him. There's really no more to say. Jesus does not offer Saul wealth, Health and happiness. If he'll only decide to follow Jesus. Jesus makes no deals here. He's no genie in a lamp you rub for good fortune. Jesus is Lord, period. Saul has one option. Repent and align his life to serve the risen Christ. You are persecuting me. Saul, but now, verse 6, 
Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. A transformed man rose from the ground. He arrived at Damascus to serve God on his terms and Jesus stopped him. From that day forward, Saul would gladly serve Jesus on his terms. And everywhere Saul went in the service of Christ, he continued to tell this account. He continued to make it clear that it was at this moment that the risen Christ called him into service. Something happened there. And Saul insisted this is what happened until the day he was executed as a prisoner for Christ. Verse 7. There were others there. And this is really important to the establishment of the authenticity of the count. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. It's important also to note this all happens before Saul gets to Damascus. Before he had any contact with the Christians there, he is en route and with the men that he's with here, these are soldiers probably of the high priest. They're not converted to Christ in this event. That means what? It means that they could easily expose any lie that Saul told about this event. They never did. In fact, in chapter 22, Saul reports this encounter to a hostile crowd in Jerusalem. And in chapter 26, he does so again before King Agrippa. These soldiers were with me. They saw it too. Something happened. None of them ever discounted Saul's account. Not a word of it historically, and it would have been so easy to do. And no one denied, but by the time that Saul reached Damascus, he was a zealous, articulate witness to the risen Christ. Neither the soldiers, nor the high priest, nor the Sanhedrin ever recorded a word of refutation against any of this. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he sits in physical blindness while his spiritual vision is clarified. He's so shaken, his world is so upended, this encounter with Christ is so transformational that for parts of three days he doesn't eat food or drink anything, but contemplates in the darkness. The next movement of the narrative, Ananias ministers to Saul, verse 10 Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that would be you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Straight Street still functions today in Damascus. You can go visit it if you'd like. 
It was then a prominent, wide, colonnaded, fashionable thoroughfare and place of commerce. Ananias could find Straight Street in his sleep, but he really didn't want to. Not on this mission, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ironically, isn't it? Ironically, Ananias thinks he's got to kind of inform Jesus about the facts on the ground. Lord, this Saul, I mean, this guy is a really bad dude. I, 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 I don't know that it's a good idea for me to go visit his home. It's not going to end well. Now, it's important again to the authenticity of the account, of the account to note here that Ananias does not know Saul. No, they, have, they have no knowledge of one another. Ananias knows about Saul, but he doesn't know him. Saul's reputation preceded him. The early church was well aware of Saul's hostility toward them. And so any idea here of conspiracy between the two, first of all, doesn't work because all of this happened to Saul before he ever reached the city. And as he reaches the city and meets with Ananias, they've never met before. They don't know one another. In fact, Ananias says, I really don't want anything to do with this guy. Could you kind of rethink my mission here, Lord? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God chose Saul as a human instrument through which to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That news was that Jesus Christ died as the Lamb of God, a sacrifice for sin, to appease the wrath of God against sinners, to bear the penalty of their sin on the cross. And secondly, that this same Jesus, who is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, rose from the dead in defeat of death and sin. He is now the firstfruits of all who will be resurrected. This was the message that Saul was chosen to proclaim. Saul the Jew would take this message of liberation to the Gentiles. And here we are today. Here we are, rejoicing in the resurrection of our Savior, rejoicing in the salvation that we have in Him. And in doing this, Saul would suffer much. The persecutor would be persecuted because the man who captured Christians had been captured by Christ. Verse 17, so Ananias honored the Lord's call. He departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, what an amazing address, isn't it? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Brother Saul, this man who had caused so much damage and trouble, who had orchestrated at this point already the deaths of Ananias' brothers and sisters in Jesus, is now himself a brother. He's part of the family. Those who attended Saul witnessed his situation. They witnessed his blindness. They witnessed his recovery of sight. If Saul was an imposter seeking to deceive, the Christians of Damascus could have easily discredited his account. They never did. They embraced him as a brother. The man who had come to kill them, they now receive in their homes as a brother in Christ. What they did witnesses to the reality of the account. What they did witness here with Saul was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit as they were and was baptized. The internal filling of the Spirit and the external, the baptism, evidences of genuine faith in Christ. And so at this point, Saul's mission is entirely recalibrated. Verse 19, the middle of the verse, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this very purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. When a a Jewish rabbi said, son of, it meant something different than how we take the phrase. But the son of someone was one who had equal status with the father. One who did what the father did. One who had the same authority. One who was in the same place as the Father. He proclaims now that the the God that he loved, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Saul did that as a rabbi. He gave all his might to serve God. And now just days after leaving Jerusalem, he is proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ is that God. The triune implications of that statement, I'm sure, are still percolating and being worked out and will be for some time in the days to come. But what he knows as he proclaims the truth is that Jesus is God's Messiah. Now the old Saul remembered this passage. He knew it by heart. Had it memorized, I have no question. As a rabbi, he said, if if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so Paul put this together and said, this is what the law says. Jesus was hanged. He's accursed by God. 
I must give every ounce of my might to fight this blasphemy that he's a, is God's Messiah. God doesn't put his Messiah on a Roman cross. Impossible. But something happened. And as he recalibrated his understanding of the Old Testament in which he was steeped, he began to read things differently, such as Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Connects with Deuteronomy 21. He was pierced. Wait for it. I'm seeing this in a new way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Paul writes later, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There it is. There's what the law says. But now I understand so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. He was cursed for us. The whole Bible opened up to his eyes when he wrote, for instance, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He preached the gospel of Christ beforehand to Abraham. This is the Son of God that Saul preached in Damascus. And what did the Jews in Damascus do? In those synagogues where he was sent to capture and take Christians back with him to Jerusalem, they, 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 they couldn't refute what he was saying. Those that were Jews and followers of the Old Covenant, they, they couldn't refute what he was saying. But rather than putting their trust in Christ, they determined to silence Paul, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Got a picture, a city wall. They're watching the gates out of the wall, the entrance exit of the, to, to take him out. And those city walls, we don't know precisely what the hole in the wall was, but almost certainly, city walls of that time would have these tiny little apartments on the top of the wall with a little window looking out. That would allow people to, to look out, see if there's anybody, any bad people coming. It also allowed them to use that little window to fire arrows or projectiles or the like out onto an attacker down below. And it was very common, these are tiny little apartments, it was very common to take a, a, a rope and to hang it from the window with a basket on the end and store your food in that. And animals couldn't get it and it wasn't taking up room in this place. And so it seems that's probably how he's lowered to the ground in the cover of night 
to escape the city. Think of it. While this escape had all the drama of an action movie, for an esteemed rabbi, this was one humiliating way to leave a town. Getting lowered by a rope in a basket so that you could hit the ground and run. Saul had approached Damascus as a big man, with soldiers in tow, with a letter from the high priest, the most important man in Israel, on a mission for God. He was Saul in charge. But as he runs into the night from Damascus, hidden from view as he's lowered in the equivalent of a clothes basket, He's now Saul the hunted, and he would be hunted the rest of his life on some level. That's his mission in Damascus. His, he joins the mission also then in Jerusalem in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Saul's application to join the membership of the church at Jerusalem received a pretty chilly rejection. This verse lends a note of credibility, I think, to the account as the heroes of the story are cast in a negative light. It's not typically what happens in a manufactured account. They were afraid of him, and they admitted it. What Barnabas trusts is the objective historical reality of how God intervened in Saul's life was his only salvation. We see that in verse 27. So they were afraid of him other than Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Notice here, Barnabas grounds his trust not in, you know, I got a gut feeling about this guy that's really good. Just a, sort of a positive Barnabas that says, you know, I, I just I think this guy's a good guy. I think we can trust him. It's not that. It's not his own instincts. Barnabas trusts the objective historical reality that God intervened in this man's life, and it's the only way that he was able to preach with such success in Damascus as he has. Let's receive him. So that bold preaching that Barnabas cites in Damascus is repeated here in Saul's ministry in Jerusalem, verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I mean, you talk about making a stir. The only way we can save you is to get you out of town. They put him on a ship, most likely sent him back to Tarsus, his home. We don't hear from him again for quite a while. When we do, look out world. The section closes, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. doesn't mean life was safe and easy and simple for them, but with this Saul of Tarsus rabbi out of the way, things were cleared to do it a whole lot better.
And God was in this. The risen Christ was saving people like Saul pretty uniquely, but saving many others as well along the way. Something happened to Saul of Tarsus. The man that we know today is the Apostle Paul. Something happened, but the question is what? As George Littleton began his research, he identified three explanations that might disprove Saul's conversion to Christ. There's not an infinite number of possibilities here. You have to lay out sort of what could reasonably have happened that would prove this is not really a true account. Well, he said, here's number one. Paul purposely deceived others into believing the lie of his conversion account. The problem with this suggestion, among a number of things, but the main problem with this is he's got to have a motive. You don't deceive people at one point in your life for the rest of your life without any particular motivation for doing so. Especially when you're running for your life because of the story that you're telling. How this... So, let's throw it out there. Maybe it was for wealth. Oh, that doesn't work. Anybody that knows Saul's writings knows that doesn't work. Saul of Tarsus had family wealth. His rise to prominence among the elites of Israel only stood to make him wealthier yet. What kind of wealth is he going to get by following Christ? He was reduced to poverty at times for doing so. And he speaks often of it in his letters. And if he's a fraud... The Christians are going to say, this guy's not poor. He's not struggling to get along. He's got great wealth. He's lying in his letters. Nobody ever pushed back. To say that the Apostle Paul, Saul here of Tarsus, made this up in order to get rich is utterly absurd. It didn't work at all, and it never did, and he never changed his story. Well, maybe, secondly, maybe it was fame and power. Again, Saul was on the fast track of prominence in Judaism, and no one would discount that. By contrast, the Christian cult was tiny, it was despised, and it was destined for extinction as far as Saul and his colleagues were concerned. It's just a matter of time until we crush this thing. Jesus an uneducated, itinerant preacher who was executed as the lowest of criminals in a shame-based society. That's not the fast track to wealth and power. By following Jesus and identifying with the church, Saul of Tarsus sacrificed fame and sacrificed power. He did not gain it. And a full-scale dullard could see that coming. Anybody could see that coming. The sledgehammer that Paul wielded against the church in order to crush it was now aimed at his head. And he knew it. He gained no standing in Israel from following Christ. He never sought and never gained any political power in the Roman Empire, but spent years as a prisoner of Rome. The idea that Saul betrayed his superiors to gain fame or power among the few persecuted people who followed a crucified Messiah is absurd. And sustaining it for the decades that he did would be impossible. At the end of this line of inquiry, Littleton had to admit this, and I quote his words, could the disciple, could the disciple of Gamaliel 
think he should gain any credit or reputation by becoming a teacher in a college of fishermen. That didn't work. Well, was it for sex? As you look at cult leaders, as you look at other religious leaders, this is a motivation that can be identified time and again. That is, these religious leaders cash in on their notoriety with a few, and there's a long string of history of taking on multiple wives. Because of the status they gain in that small circle, they take on multiple wives or worse. That just doesn't fit Saul. He remained single to the end of his life. He commended that, saying that this was necessary for him to serve Christ, and no one ever, again, if he was a fraud, the Christian churches would have said this about him. Well, we know as we look at the New Testament documents, there's a lot of things that were said against the Apostle Paul. That was never one of them. Again, it's absurd to think that that's why he did it, though many religious leaders do. All right, pitch it all. Him deceiving people to get somewhere, it just, just keeps running into dead ends. So maybe Paul himself was deceived by others. Well, this is even harder to work out. Hard to believe in light of the high value that the church placed on truth-telling and integrity. The conviction that the early church had that liars find themselves destroyed by God in judgment. Revelation 1 and verse 8. Further, it's ludicrous to suggest that the Christians in Damascus, think of it, they knew he was coming, they knew where he'd be on the road right about that time, they set this all up as a trap to surprise him with, I don't know, special effects that nobody knew about? This line of inquiry goes so crazy that some say, well, what it was was a meteorite hit, and that's the flash of light that he saw and the sound of the meteorite hitting was he confused as the voice of God. Ironically, the voice of Jesus. Well, how far-fetched. This doesn't even begin to explain how such a natural event could cause Saul to radically alter his belief system. It might knock him off his feet. It might scare him half to death. But how does that change his mind about the Jesus he's coming to persecute? Nor does it explain why no one else ever saw or heard or talked about a meteor hitting. They could go out and investigate it. There it is. The rock hit the rock right there. They didn't. No one did. More likely is the third idea. Little didn't pitch that one too pretty quickly. Here it is. And maybe the best explanation, if you have to say that Saul was lying about his experience or was confused about it, and that is that he suffered a psychotic meltdown and simply imagined the event. Conversion psychosis is a thing. The problem is that even the psychological studies of our day would identify Saul of Tarsus as the least likely of candidates. 
Today's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders states that psychotic breakdowns of a conversion sort like this, psychotic breakdowns are suffered by women at a 5 to 1 ratio compared to men. When it is a man, it is usually during battle. And it is more likely in adolescence, people of low economic status, and those with low IQ. You can look at today's descriptions and that's what you'll find. A more opposite description of Saul of Tarsus could hardly be imagined. He was the opposite of all of those. But what is more, psychotic meltdowns don't track this way. Psychotic meltdowns track with desires already imprinted on the heart. So if Saul experienced a psychotic meltdown, we would expect the word from God to be to kill Christians. That he had to do this as a calling from God, to destroy them. He had the authority of the high priest, but through this psychotic event, he now had the voice of God telling him to kill Christians. It's the exact opposite message. And it doesn't explain that message. Something happened to Saul and he never wavered as to what that something was. None of the conjectural solutions of Littleton or anyone else has proven to work. And the longer you float them, the more ridiculous they sound. Those who sent him, those who attended him, the soldiers who were not converted, the Christians in Damascus, the Christians in Jerusalem, none of them offered any explanation of what had happened. And as Pascal puts it, I believe those eyewitnesses who get their throats cut. I believe those eyewitnesses who die holding to what they're telling you as they look you in the eye. I saw this. Saul would go on to face a stoning in which he was left for dead. Multiple beatings to an inch of his life. More than one riot in which he was nearly torn apart. Several shipwrecks, hunger, thirst, dangerous exposure to cold, several imprisonments, the last one of which ended his life by execution. And he never flinched from the insistence that the risen Christ spoke to him and converted him on the road as he approached Damascus. This is the crucial consideration of both the resurrection of Christ and the conversion of Saul, and that is that the disciples did not die only for what they believed. Adherents of many religions die for what they believe. Jesus' disciples died also for what they saw. They believed because they witnessed the reality. When the Apostle Paul testified to the facts of his conversion, to the facts of Christ's resurrection, before King Agrippa, official record again, He said, the king knows about these things. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a quarter. 
It's not been done in a corner. What's not been done in a corner? His conversion and Christ's resurrection. You know about this, he says to the king. Something happened. And King Agrippa offers no rebuttal. When one carefully analyzes Saul's standing as a Pharisee, the power of his intellect, the absence of any evidence of psychotic weakness, and the singular devotion and zeal with which Paul henceforth served Jesus, the one he once persecuted, dying in his service, one is simply permitted no other rational explanation than the one that Saul himself provides and that the ancient church accepted and that none of the enemies of Christ or Saul ever disproved. The risen Christ spoke to him and Saul's conversion is one of the great triumphs of grace. And in a very real sense, every believer's conversion is a triumph of grace, which brings us back to George and Gilbert. The friends kept their date and they exchanged their books. Gilbert West reported his findings in the book Observations on the Resurrection of Christ and Lord Littleton published his findings in a book entitled Observations on the Conversion of Paul. And then both friends shared the astonishing truth that in their research they had become followers of Christ. The risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ is drawing believers to Himself as He has left us with divine revelation. The research that they had entered to willingly attack the faith in Christ led to their conversions also to Jesus. And what's at the heart of it? We read as we began this morning in unison together from 1 Corinthians 15. And there is no fuller direct development of the theology and the history of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than comes from this apostle, the Apostle Paul. He had met the risen Christ. And in meeting that risen Christ... He was redeemed, he was saved, he was changed, he was martyred, and he is now glorified. But if you've gathered with us today and you've not embraced Christ as the Lord that he is, I, I, I would encourage you, I'm not, I don't think you should expect to go out into the world and wait for Jesus to talk to you or to appear, with you, to, appear to you with some flash of light. Don't anticipate that. This is a very unique experience, but it's the same Savior and the same message. This word from God that we have in the written text of Scripture attests to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you can choose to write that off and say that's impossible, that didn't happen, but I would challenge you to look hard at the facts. To know that there were people who bore witness to this 
to the point of death and that no answer has been provided against it. I do not mean by that that what you should then do is look at this and say that my reason alone will attest that Christ is indeed risen, that He is indeed the Lord, that His death pays the penalty of my sin. That comes rather by a work of God that you cannot produce in your own strength and by your own reason. And that's why if you've come here today without Christ as Savior, that's why you've entered into a church that's been praying for you. A church that's been praying, though we may not know you were going to be here or have not met you yet, we've been praying that you would come to a place where you see that Jesus is the risen Lord, the Savior, the only name by which we must be saved. And we continue to pray that he will open your eyes to that truth, to see what was so easy for Saul of Tarsus to see. To see what, though on the other hand, is utterly impossible apart from the intervention of Christ. So it's not a flash of light and a, and a voice from heaven, but for you today it may just simply be being here. Coming to this place and hearing that the eternal Son of God took on flesh, lived in sinlessness, to die as a substitute in my place on the cross, and to rise from the dead, giving life to His people that is eternal and that is given to them now by the presence of His Holy Spirit in our soul. That's the spirit behind the songs that we've sung today. If they were meaningless, if they were lifeless, they don't need to stay that way. And you have a church praying for you, whether anonymously or knowingly, that would say to you, today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. He has come to us. May we in repentant faith come to Him. Let's pray together. We praise you, Father, for the record of the Scriptures and for the testimony and teaching of the Spirit of God who gives us understanding of the reality of these matters. Our faith is not blind faith that just leaps into the darkness and hopes for the best. It is a faith that is established on your intervention in this world your divine revelation in the word that you've given and ultimately in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this we rejoice and pray that you will continue in the context of this assembly and in assemblies throughout this world, those that are yet to meet and will finish out this Resurrection Sunday. We pray that there might be in our assemblies an evidence of the living word of God bringing to life dead souls leading us to turn from our sin and darkness to embrace the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you will do this work among us, that you will glorify your name and accomplish the good that you desire. May Jesus Christ be praised, for we know, Lord Christ, that you are risen today, and we rejoice as your people and will, by your grace, until we see you face to face. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.